guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? Can I be Ooh. frank? Can I be honest? <laughs> Please. You know, I am kind of down in the January doldrums. <laughs> Ooh, I like the word. I know nice. the, the way I'm giggling and laughing. You're like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> But I truly am. I'm tired of this month. This month has not been my favorite. And for many reasons, like some legitimate, some that aren't as legitimate, but also like, does it count? Is it legitimate to say that I am sick of January because it's done nothing but rain and be cold and I haven't seen the sun? And on top of everything else that has happened, it just makes it feel that much worse because there's literally no sunshine. Absolutely. I will add... By the way, other people out there, you guys are freezing more than us. We are, we are aware of that. But we're cold. We're not used to the gray. We're just not. It's why we live no. here. For our, It's actually like really been getting to me. That's what I was saying. That's what yeah. I was kind of saying. I am down in the doldrums, as okay. they say. I just like that word so much. It is. You're, you're getting a lot of use out of it, I will say. <laughs> I didn't expect it twice. Um, no, I agree. It's icky and gross and it is raining here so we don't even get snow it's just like cold and wet which is so annoying can i give you something that might make you feel a little bit better i think i might have told you this um if i didn't enjoy um i pay all of our bills for my household have i told you this and the one bill my husband pays hot water here like we have the heater outside or whatever Uh for the water uh what i mean by that is all of our money's together, so it's not him paying this one bill uh, out of his pocket and me paying the rest. It's the same pocket, except I make all those payments online, and for whatever reason, he is responsible for this one. So guess who has not taken a hot shower in six days? Oh, no. This one, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> it's been a lot of like pioneer days, boiling water, and then like Doing that no, or taking a shower not at in, the gym. Not in this weather. I hope not that's resolved now. It's about to be in the 30s in a couple of days. No, it isn't. We're still waiting. <laughs> they have like four more days until they can come. Like, you know, they give you a window. We have like a Hold on. Day. I thought it was just like immediate. Like once you took care of the thing, it comes Amerigas right back on. Amerigas has to come to your house. They have to make a stop. One time I saw an Amerigas truck go by and I was like, it's happening. Please, and- <laughs> please stop. <laughs> Then I took the saddest, coldest shower. It was just... No, yeah. that is really awful. I know. I'm so and you'd sorry. think I would learn and be like, well, I'll take over that bill. No. Now I'm like, you definitely have it. And I'll just be really angry next time. But luckily, he's miserable <laughs> with the cold shower. So we're all miserable. Um, So yeah, I'm good with January being over. Although my daughter's birthday is Monday. And I'm very excited. Yes. She's turning 15. So yeah. That's some good stuff, right? I've ever heard. I was thinking that, like, so you knew her when she was five, but even on the podcast, it was oh what? Oh, my gosh. like eight or nine, right? Yeah. Like, when we started, our, our oldest were seven, eight, nine, something like that. So it's so crazy. Time just goes by yeah. so fast. It does. You know, sorry, everyone. We're off on a tangent. We're kind of going down. We're going down memory lane. This I is know. what I need for to bring to lift my spirits. See? Um, <laughs> yeah. So my son is in the eighth grade, I've said mm-hmm. before. And so he's going to be having eighth grade graduation soon. So the school asked me to provide some photos, you know, for the slideshow whenever mm-hmm. they're going up on stage and everything to, you know, give some baby pictures and pictures over the years. So while I was looking for ones to send the school, I came across so many 
adorable little pictures mm-hmm. of him and your daughter and when they were little, like yeah. they were like five. And it was just like, oh my gosh, the nostalgia. Just to see them, I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like that was just literally yesterday. And I cannot believe that she's turning 15. That's like, it blows my mind. I, I remember know. like being 15 very, very well. Okay, I don't remember it that well, but (laughs) I know it happened 25 years ago, Um, so I'd rather not. Wow, I was fine in January, but now my cold shower and this conversation's really got me in the doldrums of life, so why don't don't we get into the episode this week, Mandy? Okay, let's do it. In the summer of 1985, the Upper East Side of New York became the backdrop for a chilling mystery that would leave investigators baffled for years— Gail Katz Bierenbaum, wife of accomplished plastic surgeon and licensed pilot Robert Bierenbaum, vanished from their Manhattan apartment without a trace. Robert gave police multiple contradicting stories, including one alleging that the couple had gotten into an argument and Gail left to cool off but never returned. What Robert didn't mention was that on the same day his wife went missing, he took a two-hour flight over the Atlantic Ocean. Although these circumstances seemed eerily suspicious, prosecutors felt there wasn't enough evidence, so the disappearance of Gail Katz remained a mystery for over a decade. Then, in 1998, prosecutors decided to reopen the case and seek justice for Gail. Gail Katz was a New York native, born there in 1956 to parents Emmanuel and Sylvia. Not much is known about her childhood, but in 1982, Gail pursued a PhD in clinical psychology at Long Island University. At some point during the 80s, she crossed paths with Robert Bierenbaum, a surgical resident at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn. He graduated medical school in 1978. Robert seemed like the perfect catch. He was fluent in multiple languages, passionate about gourmet cooking, skiing, and piloting small planes. But as the relationship progressed, people started noticing more and more red flags. Gail's sister once went on a double date with the couple and became really appalled when Robert started behaving just very aggressively. He was shoving food into Gail's mouth during this date, and then he even tried to do the same to her sister. In another bizarre occurrence, one day Gail called her sister crying hysterically and said that Robert had tried to drown her cat in the toilet. And the reason was because Robert thought Gail liked the cat more than she liked him. Gail told her sister that she was going to get rid of the cat in hopes that this would clear things up between she and Robert. And her sister told her, hey, actually, maybe you should just consider getting rid of Robert. Yeah. But yeah, instead, Gail, I guess, chose to get rid of the cat. She told her sister, you know, this is everything's going to be fine. This is, you know, no big deal. I'll just rehome the cat and things will work out between me and Robert. The couple tied the knot in August of 1982, and they moved into an apartment on the 12th floor on East 85th Street, but almost as soon as the vows were said, the arguments between the couple began. Both of them openly complained about each other, really to anyone who would even listen, suggesting that their life together was rocky and that they didn't really love each other. Robert would even say he hated Gail so much that sometimes he wanted to kill her. Gail would tell friends that Robert physically abused her and that she was scared of his temper. After being threatened numerous times, Gail started to contemplate leaving Robert. In the fall of 1983, Robert caught Gail smoking a cigarette on the terrace and became so enraged over it that he choked her until she was unconscious. Robert ended up calling 911 for help when he realized just how badly he had hurt her. 
Gail was constantly asking her friend Marianne questions such as, should she leave Robert? Would Marianne leave her husband if he strangled her? And has her husband ever threatened to hurt her? So basically just like playing this out, trying to get answers, trying to see what other people would do, like people you trust, but like telling people what's really going on. And so Gail also confided in Marianne that Robert had threatened to kill her before. In another conversation, Gail mentioned to Marianne that she and Robert had discussed the Klaus von Bülow case, which is a case regarding this British lawyer and socialite who was actually convicted of two counts of attempted murder after trying to kill his wife, but ultimately he actually left her in a vegetative state. Robert told Gail that the problem with this case was that Klaus left evidence, and Robert said that if it were him, he wouldn't leave any evidence. Days before she disappeared, Gail told Marianne that she had met someone she was interested in and had contemplated bringing this man to the apartment while Robert wasn't there. Around the same time, she also told Marianne she thought she was being followed, and she spoke about her plan to ask Robert for a divorce, even saying that she had secretly borrowed $10,000, which she was actually keeping in a safety deposit box, and she was going to use this $10,000 to fund her separation and divorce from Robert. In the fall of 1983, Gail reached out to a cousin of hers named Hillard, who happened to be an attorney. She contacted him at his office and sounded very upset. She was speaking in a hushed tone and talking rapidly, and she was describing this altercation that she had with Robert the night before. During this altercation, Robert choked her unconscious, which was not the first time he had done that. Gail didn't know when Robert would be home or what she should really do, so she was calling Hillard for advice, and his advice was to get out, leave immediately. So Gail did move out, and she went to live with her grandfather for a little while. She also did report the incident, but nothing ever came of it. Unfortunately, this was actually really common for the time. This case happened in the 1980s, and that was a time when domestic violence really wasn't taken very seriously. Gail ended up convincing Robert to go to counseling, but that didn't turn out to be such a great experience either. Actually, it turned out to be pretty terrifying. After meeting with Robert and hearing him talk about his relationship with Gail, the therapist actually wrote Gail a letter privately where this therapist was suggesting that Gail should leave the marriage because the therapist was concerned that Robert might kill her. Oh my gosh. And you know, when he's meeting with this therapist, He's on his best behavior. So just imagine the things he's telling the therapist for the therapist to know. Right. To see that. Yeah. To very clearly see the signs of that. At first, Gail brushed off these concerns, but it wasn't long before she called her sister and said Robert had strangled her to the point of unconsciousness again. She said that Robert revived her and then apologized profusely. Gail told her sister about the letter from the therapist warning her about the potentially dangerous situation she was in by choosing to stay with Robert. Also in the fall of 1983, Gail's employer, Lee, noticed bruises on Gail's neck, which Gail openly admitted was from her husband strangling her after he caught her smoking a cigarette. She told Lee that she and Robert fought quite a lot and had a very difficult marriage. She told similar things to her former employer, which was someone named Francesca. She said Robert had a terrible temper and that he scared her, and she even asked Francesca if she could move in with her at one point. Gail also confided about the problems with Robert to her friend Denise. She talked about how controlling Robert was and how unhappy she was in her marriage. She also told Denise about the choking incident and also the letter from the psychiatrist saying that she should leave him. 
Gail told similar things to another friend named Yvette. She told Yvette that she was going to use the letter from the psychiatrist as leverage in the divorce by threatening to use it to ruin Robert's career if he didn't meet her divorce demands. Furthermore, Gail apparently had knowledge of some massive multi-million dollar Medicare fraud that was being carried out by Robert and his father, which she was also threatening to expose. Gail opened up to her own therapist about everything going on with Robert. For the four to six months leading up to her disappearance, she was regularly talking to her therapist about actively seeking an apartment with the intention of separating from Robert. In the summer of 1984 and spring of 1985, Gail was seeing an investment banker named Anthony, and she talked about her deep unhappiness and the many violent attacks she'd endured at the hands of her husband. At one point, she told Anthony she was considering moving in with a friend named Ellen that lived in Connecticut. At some point, Gail developed a romantic relationship with a doctor named Kenneth, who she was seeing in the months leading up to her disappearance. She also told Kenneth that she wanted to leave her husband and also mentioned moving to Connecticut to him. On Saturday, July 6th, Gail went to a gynecologist appointment and scheduled a follow-up visit for December. Later that day, she got her hair done and then spent a few hours with one of her close friends. During this meeting, she told her friend that she planned to ask Robert for a divorce the next day, and she talked about how she had borrowed this money so that she could get herself on her feet. Gail had newspapers with ads for apartments circled, and she mentioned her friend Ellen in Connecticut, who said she could come there. This was the last time anyone other than Robert saw Gail. At 6.30 p.m. on Sunday, July 7th, Robert went to a family get-together for his nephew's birthday by himself. Robert told his dad that Gail had gone out earlier in the day and hadn't returned in time for the party, but he didn't seem or say that he was concerned about her or anything like that. After the party, Robert went to a friend's house, and while he was there, he said that he and Gail had a fight, and she left the apartment wearing shorts, a halter top, and sandals, and said that she was going sunbathing in Central Park, but she never came home. Robert was apparently distraught, and he tried calling the apartment a couple times to see if Gail had gotten home yet, but there was no answer. When Robert went back to the apartment, it was close to midnight and Gail still wasn't there, so Robert called her friend Yvette to ask if she knew where Gail was. Robert told Yvette that they had an argument and Gail had gone to Central Park and never come home, and Yvette told Robert that he should call the police and maybe try talking to the building's doorman. Robert also told multiple people that he went to Central Park to look for Gail himself and that he found her towel and suntan oil, but she was nowhere to be found. On July 8th, Gail was supposed to have her regularly scheduled appointment with her therapist, but she never showed up. Robert called the therapist and asked if Gail came, but the therapist said no. Nobody called Robert that day and said that they had seen her. Robert then called Gail's friend Ellen, this is the one that was in Connecticut, who offered her a place to stay, and he claimed that Gail's therapist, Dr. Barron, said that she was concerned that Gail may have hurt herself because she was very depressed. However, Dr. Barron denied that she ever said anything like that or that she even came close to discussing Gail's state of mind with Robert. On the contrary, her professional opinion was that Gail was not suicidal. She even described Gail's demeanor in the recent weeks as being happy and jovial. And we have so much more to get into with this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. (laughs) 
If you're tired of emptying your pockets every time you indulge in a little retail therapy, then it's time to check out Rakuten. With Rakuten, shopping and savings go hand in hand, and that's because whether you're a fashionista, a beauty enthusiast, a tech guru, a home essentials devotee, or an adventurous traveler, Rakuten has something in store just for you. With over 3,500 stores to choose from, they really have all your favorite categories covered. But the magic of Rakuten is you're actually making money on things you already buy. In 2024, instead of throwing money away, wouldn't it be nice to make some by doing something you actually enjoy? And one of the best parts of Rakuten, and the big reason I love it, is that it's such a breeze to use and it doesn't cost you a penny. Membership is absolutely free, and it took me about two minutes to sign up. And as soon as I signed up, the first thing I went to from the app was Sephora, where I got 16% cash back. And that isn't Monopoly money, that's cold hard cash that was actually deposited into my PayPal account. But if you're not a PayPal girly, they also have the option to have it deposited directly into your bank account, or they'll even send you a check. Totally up to you. So if you're looking for a way to earn money on things you're already buying, check out Rakuten today. With brands like Best Buy, Macy's, Adidas, and Expedia, shopping has never been more fun or fruitful. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up. I love my family, but I am so sick of making dinner. I'm tired at that point, and I just want to get something on the table quickly. And also, I don't want to use the brain power to plan it. Thanks to HelloFresh, though, dinner can be quick and delicious, and I can use my brain for other things, like thinking about the Mother God documentary once again. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, and for good reason. They have meals that are ready in 20 minutes or less, as well as lightning prep recipes and super quick breakfasts and lunches that are perfect for those busy days when you just want to think about or watch the newest, weirdest documentary. Not only does HelloFresh take the frustration out of the old what's for dinner question, but HelloFresh comes delivered right to your door and packed with farm fresh ingredients that are pre-portioned so you save the hassle. Plus, there's less wasted food, which is always an issue when I want to try a new recipe on my own. Recently, my family and I tried the salmon in a creamy Dijon chive sauce with roasted potatoes potato wedges, and lemony zucchini. It was an instant hit in my house, and HelloFresh amazed me once again with how much a meal can be elevated with just a delicious sauce and yummy vegetables. I was able to make this in under 30 minutes, and I felt like a total pro. Thanks to their easy-to-follow recipe cards that include photos, I was able to move quickly through the recipe with no issues. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MomsFree and use code MomsFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash MomsFree with code MomsFree. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were discussing Robert and his wife, Gail, and the abuse that Robert was inflicting on Gail. And at this point in the story, she's gone missing. Robert claims the last time he saw her, she was headed to Central Park, but no one's seen her or heard from her since then. So finally, at 9 p.m. on July 8th, Robert filed a missing persons report and gave a 45-minute interview to Detective Dalsas. His official story was that Gail left their apartment at 11 a.m. on July 7th to go sunbathing in Central Park. When she left, she was wearing pink shorts and a white shirt with operados written across the front, and that's apparently a beach in Brazil. A little note here, this is not the same shirt that he had told other people she was wearing that day. He said he stayed at their apartment until 5.30 p.m., at which time he went over to his sister's house in New Jersey for the birthday party. He doesn't mention at this point leaving the apartment to go look for Gail like he was telling other people he had done. He said when he returned home from New Jersey, Gail still wasn't there. 
The detective told Robert to think carefully and tell him everything that happened on July 7th, including every detail of the day. He told Robert how important this was because he was the last person to see his wife alive. Robert told the investigator that Gail had attempted to take her own life once before. He was asked if he could provide a list of names and phone numbers for Gail's close friends and family so the police could start searching for her. But Robert said he didn't have a list with him, so the officer said he'd call him later that night. Robert then said he wouldn't be home because he had plans to go out for dinner. The investigator waited until 12.30 a.m. and tried calling Robert, but Robert never answered. He left about eight messages on Robert's home answering machine and at his work number over the next week, but Robert never responded to any of them. Meanwhile, even though Robert wasn't returning the detective's calls, several members of Gail's family did reach out to Detective Dalsas to express their concern for Gail. On July 10th, Robert called the other detective assigned to the case, Detective O'Malley, and asked him how the investigation was coming along. This is after ignoring Detective Dalsas's phone calls and messages. Now he's right. calling the other detective on the case and just asking how the case is going. He mentioned that he spoke to his building doorman who said that he had seen Gail leave at around 11 a.m. on July 7th. On July 13th, Robert met with Detective O'Malley, but O'Malley later told the media that he didn't believe Robert's story right from the get-go, and he said he was really put off by Robert. He kept calling the detective by his first name, which was Tom, instead of, you know, referring to him respectfully as Detective O'Malley, and he said it just seemed like Robert was trying to kind of butter him up and befriend him, and this is like a manipulation tactic yeah. that people would use with the police. So Robert evaded questions about what he was doing on July 7th, but eventually he said he drove his dad's Cadillac to his sister's home in New Jersey. He said that he took that car because his own car was having mechanical problems. He also said he and Gail argued the night before she disappeared, and the argument continued into the morning of July 7th, which prompted Gail to leave at around 11 a.m. to go cool off. He didn't mention going to search for Gail at any point, though. Detective O'Malley asked Robert why he waited until the evening on the following day to report his wife missing, but Robert just said he thought she would eventually come back, and when he talked to his friends, they advised him to simply leave her in Central Park all night by herself. Good friends. Right? So he actually wasn't able to provide names for any friends who mm. said this. Probably Convenient. was just made up entirely, but we don't know. O'Malley was convinced at that very moment that Robert had killed Gail, and he was determined to prove it. Robert admitted that his marriage was in shambles and that they were both in therapy to try improving the relationship, but he alleged that Gail was depressed and suicidal. Robert told the detective that he had never hit his wife before, but when he was asked specifically whether he had choked her unconscious, he said he didn't want to talk about that. A group of family and friends, including Robert, as well as Gail's friend Marianne, were searching for her while posting missing person signs around Central Park and other places on July 14th. Gail's father spoke with many regulars in the area who said that they didn't see Gail on July 7th. At this point, Gail had been missing for a full week, but Robert was still acting rather cold and really just unconcerned. He made a comment to the group that he thought Gail was just off on a shopping spree at Bloomingdale's, and he even made a snarky comment about how spoiled she was. When the search party got back to Robert and Gail's apartment, Robert commented to his mother-in-law that he had taken the rug out of their apartment to be cleaned because the cat got sick on it. 
Later on that same day, Detective Dalsas met with Robert, his father, and Gail's parents. The meeting was set up by Gail's sister, and it focused on getting a more detailed account of Robert's activities during the weekend that Gail went missing. Robert was asked to give a full, specific narration of exactly what he did those days. He said he got home from work around 5 p.m. on Friday the 5th, and he and Gail went out to see a movie at 8. They got home around midnight that night. On Saturday morning, Robert went to work, then he went to visit his father and got home around noon. He and Gail went out for lunch, and then they went shopping for bras at a lingerie store, and then they went to a pet supply store to get cat food. They apparently argued during this outing, but according to Robert, they had a candlelight dinner with steaks that night. He didn't say at this point whether or not they had resolved the argument. Robert said he woke up around 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, which was the 7th, and Gail got a phone call from an acquaintance that seemed to upset her. She allegedly left at 11 a.m. to go to Central Park to sunbathe. During this meeting, though, Robert doesn't mention having an argument with Gail that morning, as he had previously said. Robert said he stayed at the apartment all day until 5.30 when he left for his family's party in New Jersey. He said when he got home at midnight and Gail still wasn't home, he called her mom to ask if she was there, and then he went to bed. The next morning, he went to work and then reported Gail missing in the evening. Investigators asked if they could look around the couple's apartment, which Robert agreed to do, and then said he would contact Detective Dalsas to set up a time. But that didn't happen until September, a month later. Wow. And like, what good is it going to do at that point? Exactly. Police conducted a search of the area between Gail's apartment and Central Park, but found no trace of her. Her family and friends put up pictures of her in the neighborhood, and Detective Dalsas contacted several people whose names had been given to him by Robert and Gail's family, but nobody he contacted said they had actually seen Gail. Robert eventually hired an attorney who told him to stop talking to the police. On July 18th, Gail's parents told the Daily News that they thought Gail was dead. Her mom said it was just hard to keep hope after more than a week of Gail being missing, and she just felt in her heart that her daughter was not alive. The family continued putting up posters and asking for information, but in the back of their minds, they couldn't shake this feeling that Robert had murdered Gail. Gail's sister Elaine later told the Daily News that she was suspicious of Robert and revealed that he had this violent nature. In another interview, Robert said he was offering a $100,000 reward for information and announced that he had even hired a PI to help in the search. He admitted to having marital problems and to having an argument with Gail before she left for Central Park at 11 a.m. on July 7th, but police were quick to reiterate that no one had actually witnessed Gail leaving the building that day. Despite Gail still being missing, Robert took a vacation to Southampton at the end of July and seemed to have really no emotion about it. Robert spoke poorly about Gail to several people in Southampton, telling the landlord at the house there that he had found cocaine in Gail's drawers, which led him to believe that she ran off with drug dealers. He described Gail to another person as being a, quote, tramp who was probably off living with someone else. While in Southampton, Robert began an affair with a woman named Karen that lasted for about six weeks. And during this relationship, he told Karen all about Gail's disappearance and said that his car and apartment had been searched and he was cleared of any wrongdoings in the case. He also claimed that a PI found evidence to suggest that Gail was in California. 
This relationship didn't last long, though. Karen ended things with Robert after he verbally attacked her at a restaurant one evening. In September, Detective Dalsas finally got permission from Robert's attorney to search Robert's apartment for fingerprints and anything else that might help them identify Gail, but that was it. They weren't supposed to be there searching for evidence that would shed light on her disappearance, only to gather things like toothbrush, things that would be able to later be linked to her specifically. So the search was limited just to the scope of this permission that had been given. It was carried out on September 30th. Detective Dalsas did look around just to see if he could detect any evidence that a crime was committed, but he didn't see anything. Again, it had been a month, over a yeah, month at this like point. Yeah, like six so, weeks. Why? Yeah. So the case really seemed to hit a standstill at this point, and things went pretty quiet for about the next year. As time went on, though, Robert made numerous inconsistent or incriminating statements to people in his life. He told Gail's friend Yvette that he and Gail had a severe argument the day before her disappearance and that that argument was way more severe than he let on. He said the argument they had on July 7th became explosive. Robert told other people that Gail had a drug addiction and may have disappeared with drug dealers or been killed by her quote-unquote druggy friends. Another theory that Robert presented was that Gail just ran off to live with someone else in the Caribbean. In another bizarre claim, Robert told some people that Gail had been seen wandering around the Central Park area in a fugue state and that it was unlikely she would ever return. In September of 1985, Robert invited a medical student named Katie, that's not a real name, but that's what we're saying, to live with him in his apartment. Even though Katie actually worked under Robert's direct supervision, they had been dating for about a month before she moved in. Katie said Robert made no attempt or effort to find his missing wife during the year that they dated. He repeated a version of the same story he told others about Gail leaving to sunbathe in Central Park after an argument and suggested that she had run off with someone. A few months after Katie moved in, Robert got a call at 3 in the morning from the police. They told him to come right away to view a woman they found at the New York Port Authority bus terminal that they believed might be Gail. Katie asked Robert if he wanted her to pack her things and leave the apartment in light of this new development, but Robert told her it was fine. He said he doubted it was Gail. He did, however, complain about having to go in during the middle of the night, but he did actually go. When he came back, he matter-of-factly told Katie that it wasn't Gail. One day while Katie was living with Robert, she confronted him after hearing a number of accusatory messages on his answering machine. She told him that based on these rumors and accusations that she was hearing, she thought he either intentionally or unintentionally hurt Gail during a fight. Katie further suggested that Robert could have easily put Gail's body into a big flight bag or duffel bag and carried her out of the apartment, put her in the back of the car, drove to the airport, took a flight, and dumped Gail's body out of the plane. Robert apparently had no reaction to this accusation and didn't say anything in response. About six months into their relationship, Robert agreed to have Katie's friend Sharon move into the apartment temporarily. While Sharon was living there, Katie confided in her about this theory that Robert had killed his wife and threw her body out of a plane. The two women decided to look for Robert's flight log, and they ended up finding it with a handwritten entry that looked like it had actually been altered from the original notation of July 7th, 1985, to a substituted date of August 7th, 1985, which, mm. of course, looks very suspicious. 
In September of 1986, an investigator from the DA's office named Hope Martin began investigating Gail's disappearance. When she learned that Robert was a licensed pilot, she was also interested in whether or not he had flown an airplane on the day his wife was last seen. It was learned that Robert did rent a plane from MacDan Aircraft Rental at Caldwell Airport in Fairfield, New Jersey at 4.30 p.m. on July 7th. He returned the plane an hour and 56 minutes later, which would give him just enough time to fly a 165-mile round trip over the Atlantic Ocean. It was now thought that Robert had disposed of Gail's body during this flight. He was also a surgeon, so they did think it was possible he had dismembered her body before placing it in a duffel bag and throwing it into the ocean. He would have easily been able to load luggage or other items onto the plane without being seen because the rental office for where he got this plane wasn't situated in a way that gave them a view of this aircraft while he was getting in it. The airplane was actually located. You had to go drive by a car after you, I guess, I don't know how renting a plane works, but they couldn't (laughs) see what he was doing. Yeah. An inspector from the FAA told the police that, in his opinion, it wouldn't be that difficult for a pilot to single-handedly dispose of something from a plane uh, the size that Robert took that day. The plane that he rented was a very easy-to-handle four-passenger plane, so very easy for one person to kind of move about. Right. And we have more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. One of my favorite TikTok trends lately is some girl with huge, voluminous hair showing all the different ways she can put her hair into a cute ponytail. Sounds boring, but what I like is the stitch that comes in showing a very thin hair girl trying the same thing, but with hilariously different results. Because I absolutely relate. So when I was tired of having the thinnest hair this side of the Mississippi, I decided to turn to Vegamore. And this is long before they were a sponsor to help with my hair growth needs. And if you find yourself in late January realizing you haven't quite stuck to your New Year's resolutions, maybe swap one of the lame ones for a Vegamore-inspired resolution. Vegamore Grow Serum is an easy-to-use serum that you just drop on your scalp with dry hair, and using Vegamore consistently for three months can help reach your goal of visibly fuller, healthier, and thicker-looking hair. Using Vegamore is as easy as putting it next to my toothbrush. When I'm getting ready to brush my teeth before bed, I see my Vegamore and put it on my hair right away. And then I'm done. I've been using it for several months now and really do feel a difference in my hair, especially near the front on both sides. I also love that Vegamore products are 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones, so I can feel good about using it. Elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com slash moms and use code moms at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash moms, code moms to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash moms, code moms. Have you ever thought about how much you're paying for subscriptions? I know, none of us really want to. And that's probably because although most of us think we're only spending about $80 a month, it's actually closer to $200. Don't worry though, Rocket Money is here to save the day. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. They can help you wrangle those subscriptions and put your hard-earned cash back where it belongs, in your wallet. So if you're feeling the heat from rising prices and need to cut costs, just sign up for Rocket Money and they'll have those subscriptions gone in no time. 
The older I get, the less remembering things actually comes naturally to me. In fact, it's a gift to remember anything at this point. And that's where Rocket Money really has helped save the day for me. My husband and I are making an effort to pay off my student loan. Yes, I'm 40, and yes, I don't have a degree to show for it. But with Rocket Money, I can see where we're spending money and create a budget that actually works for our family without feeling so budgety. And it's not just me saving with Rocket Money. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash moms. That's rocketmoney.com slash moms. Rocketmoney.com slash moms. Step into the glitzy world of June's journey and prepare for an adventure that's out of this world. Get ready to ditch the dull and dive into a world where mystery meets glamour and where June Parker's drama-filled escapades will have you hooked faster than you can say, flapper dress. Whether you're itching for a whodunit fix or just craving an escape from the mundane, June's journey is your ticket to excitement. Follow June as she unravels family secrets and untangles the web of mystery surrounding her sister's death. It's like joining a high society soiree, but with way more intrigue and way fewer dull conversations about the weather. Just kidding. You know we love a weather chat. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and immerse yourself in a world where every corner holds a new clue and every twist keeps you guessing. But hold on to your pearls because June's journey isn't just another run-of-the-mill mobile game. I'm already knee-deep in the fifth chapter of June's journey, and each chapter is more fun than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the toe-tapping music, everything about June's journey screams class. So what are you waiting for? Step into June's world and let the adventure begin. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And now back to the episode. So before the break, one of the investigators was able to determine that on the day that Gail went missing, Robert had actually rented a plane and was able to take a flight for about two hours before returning the plane. And so he even had a girlfriend at this point that thinks that maybe he took Gail's body and dumped her in the ocean on this flight. So, of course, investigators called for a forensic examination of the plane, but unfortunately, that search yielded no results. But of course, it's not really surprising. It's been over a year at this point. But nevertheless, detectives still went to the DA with their theory that Robert used the plane to dispose of his wife's body after he murdered her. Unfortunately, since there was no body and no forensic evidence to prove anything, the case went nowhere. The investigation into Gail's disappearance was officially closed in April of 1987. Then, two years later, in May of 1989, a torso was found on a beach in Staten Island. Investigators actually used old chest x-rays to try and determine if this torso belonged to Gail. So again, this is before DNA forensics. So there was an x-ray tech that actually looked at Gail's x-rays and compared it to the x-rays of the torso. And it was determined at that point that the torso did belong to Gail. Despite this new evidence, though, Robert still was not arrested and the case remained officially closed. Robert went on to move to Vegas where he started his own plastic surgery practice and began dating a chiropractor named Stephanie. The couple dated for the next three years, during which time Robert never mentioned that his wife had gone missing. So according to Stephanie, the first year of dating Robert was really perfect. He seemed like a dreamboat, seemed like everything she wanted, but then the red flags start showing. Robert does eventually admit to having been married once before, but he said his wife disappeared, 
and he didn't want to talk about it. He claimed she had a drug problem and had affairs, and he said he felt like her death was drug-related. The way Robert told the story made Stephanie think it was totally believable, but Stephanie did get to see a darker side of Robert with her own two eyes. On two separate occasions, Robert became enraged and lost his temper in front of other people. The second time it happened, she suggested that they go to therapy. The therapist actually ended up recommending that Stephanie get out of the relationship because her life was potentially in danger with Robert, which is like deja vu from what ended up happening with Gail years before. That is so wild to me that two separate professional therapists in two places, two different times, both wrote letters to women saying, this man is dangerous, you need to get out of this relationship. That is just wild to me. Absolutely. And at this point, he knows that Gail had this letter, right? So he knows this has happened before, and he still can't even fake it to make the, which thank goodness, you know, terrifying being himself, I guess. But yeah, it's so terrifying. But after hearing this from the therapist, Stephanie actually leaves him. In 1995, Robert started seeing a new woman who had a strange experience with him on their very first date. She asked Robert if he'd ever been married before. Just typical questions you ask when you're getting to know someone that you're going on a date with, especially when you're like a little bit older and like the age where people could have been married before. That's a reasonable question to ask someone that you're going on a date with. And he kind of like hesitated and didn't want to answer the question. So she just jokingly trying to be lighthearted said something like, well, did you kill her? And apparently Robert appeared to be really stunned and surprised that she asked this question. And so he asked the woman what she knew, which is like paranoid much, like Mm -hmm. like just immediately thinking that she's on to him, just a guilty conscience. So the woman asked, you know, what happened to his wife. And Robert told her that Gail may have died by suicide or may have been met with foul play due to her risky lifestyle. He admitted that he had a bit of a temper in the past, but said he'd gotten much better at controlling himself. That relationship was also short-lived, and Robert soon met another woman, a gynecologist named Janet. They got married in 1996 and moved to North Dakota, where Robert ended up opening a practice. In 1998, he and Janet had a daughter. No one in North Dakota knew about Robert's past, so he managed to kind of fly under the radar and make a new name for himself there as a local hero after he even saved a boy's life after this boy was bitten by a tiger at the state fair. What's going on in North Dakota? Honestly, that sounds par for the course. No offense, North Dakota. It looks beautiful. But I mean, that's like our equivalent to like a snake at Rattlesnake Roundup biting somebody. Or like an alligator at Gatorland. There you go. Yeah, same thing. So this woman who nannied for Robert and Janet said that Robert really looked like a great guy. He always looked great. He wore suits. He appeared to love his daughter and just all around had a bunch of really good characteristics. But little did Robert know, prosecutors back in Manhattan were about to reopen the investigation into Gail's disappearance. In 1998, that torso that was previously determined to be Gail's was exhumed and DNA tested. At this point, time has passed. We now have new technology and they're able to test for DNA evidence. But in an upsetting turn of events, it was learned that the torso actually did not belong Mm. to Gail. Her family was devastated to have this one shred of closure that they finally had ripped away from them and to be told that 
in fact, they still don't know where Gail is or what happened to her. Detective O'Malley, who was assigned to the original investigation, was asked to help with the new one, which he said he was completely thrilled to do. He's the one who never thought Robert's story added up to begin with. He always suspected that Robert was guilty, and he thought, you know, all these years had gone by. Robert was probably thinking he was really slick and had gotten away with it. So he was like, heck yeah, I definitely want to be involved in, you know, finding the truth. When Robert found out that this investigation was reopened, he was shocked. He told his friends that he didn't know why they were digging this thing up 15 years later. Wow. Everyone involved in the case was re-interviewed, and investigators from New York even flew to North Dakota to speak with Robert in person, but of course, he refused to talk to them. Officers even went to Vegas and interviewed Stephanie and the other women that Robert dated while living there. One of these interviews was with Katie, that was Robert's girlfriend for a short time in New York. She told the investigators about the night that Robert got the call to come see the woman they thought was Gail and how he made this remark that he doubted it was Gail before he left, which, of course, seems like a strange thing to say if you're holding out hope that your wife will come home one day. You know, yeah. Obviously, you understand being like, I guess cautiously optimistic might be one thing, but for him to just be like, I doubt it's her. Like, it does seem strange if you have been waiting for news that, you know, there's somebody has seen her or anything, you're holding on to any hope. So Katie immediately thought it was strange that he wasn't a little bit more enthusiastic about wanting to go and see if this was in fact his wife. At this point, investigators decided to move forward with the case using new evidence, plus the evidence that was uncovered years earlier regarding the flight that Robert took on the day Gail disappeared. A grand jury finally agreed to indict Robert. On December 8th, 1999, he was charged with second degree murder. Robert pleaded not guilty and was released on $500,000 bond. Gail's sister, Elaine, told the media that she wished her parents were still around to see justice for Gail, and she blamed Robert for the fact that her parents had both died before the age of 70 due to the immense grief over losing their daughter. At Robert's trial, prosecutors told the jury that Robert had the opportunity, he had the motive, and he had the intent to kill his wife. They talked about how dysfunctional and volatile the marriage was and the long history of threats, violence, and angry words. The couple harbored serious feelings of hostility towards each other, and Robert had motives to murder Gail after he found out that she was planning to leave him and blackmail him or expose him for fraud. They asserted that Robert looked at killing Gail as a way out. Furthermore, it was alleged that Robert became irate when Gail told him she wanted a divorce, and she confronted him with this letter from the therapist that was urging her to leave. Prosecutors believe that that's when Robert choked Gail, as he had done many times in the past, only this time she didn't survive. They also believe that Robert dismembered Gail's body and packed it into a duffel bag, which he then transported to Caldwell Airport in New Jersey, loaded it onto a plane, and flew out over the Atlantic Ocean to dispose of it. They actually showed a video that was created to demonstrate how Robert could have accomplished this from the point of loading a 110-pound body onto the plane and discarding it over the ocean before landing back at the same airport. Just to go the extra mile, and I thought this was really fascinating, they had a sergeant from the NYPD Aviation Unit take three different flights in a Cessna 172 from the Caldwell Airport. So on each of these flights, he was videotaped ejecting a 110-pound bag of sand and rice over the ocean. 
Each time, he used a different maneuver to get the bag out of the plane. This was done to show that Robert could have easily done this on his own without any help. Prosecutors told the jury there was no proof that Gail had run away or completed suicide. They said there was no proof that anyone other than Robert had killed her. Surprisingly, Robert's defense took kind of an unusual angle and admitted that Gail likely died on July 7th, 1985, but they suggested that she died at some point after leaving the apartment and that Robert was not responsible. They said there was no evidence that linked Robert to Gail's death. There was no DNA, no body, and no evidence. They admitted that Robert rented a plane that day, but said he was scared to tell the police at first because he knew it would look suspicious, even though it wasn't. Only one witness was called by the defense. It was a man named Joel, and he testified that he was in a bagel shop on July 7th when he noticed an attractive woman wearing a distinctive t-shirt with a non-English word written on it. Two weeks later, when he saw the posters with Gail's pictures on them, he said he recognized her as the woman that he had seen in the bagel shop that day. The man described Gail as being deeply tanned, about five foot one, with what he called a well-developed body. When he was cross-examined, Joel admitted that he first told an investigator for the defense that the woman he saw was tall and statuesque. But Joel explained he just gotten mixed up. He thought he was thinking about Gail and this other woman, and he put one's face on the other one's body, and he said it was just a mix-up. Gail's sister was called as a rebuttal witness, and she showed a picture of Gail from the summer of 1985 and described her sister as being less than five foot three, weighing about 110 pounds, and basically being flat-chested. She said she wore A-cut bras, so she wasn't well-developed like this man Joel was saying. The trial concluded on October 24th when the jury deliberated and came to the conclusion that Robert was guilty of second-degree murder. Gail's brother said Robert never once came to the family and said he wasn't responsible for her death. He never even tried to pretend that he was innocent to her family. The sentencing hearing was held on November 29th, and prosecutors asked for the maximum sentence of 25 years to life. Robert's defense asked the judge for leniency and tried to paint Robert as a good guy for all this work he had done to help children in Mexico get free surgeries, which you you can be two things at once, right? right? You can be a surgeon that has done charitable work in Mexico, and you can also be an abuser who, you know, has potentially done something to your wife. Like, those two things aren't mutually exclusive, so yeah. – it's interesting. I always think it's interesting when they're like, well, look at this other good thing that he did. But it's like, okay, but that – Life would be so much easier if it was that black and white. Like you could say, oh, that's sure. definitely a bad guy. That's definitely a good guy. But it's right. a lot more nuanced than that. Yeah. So Robert did not speak at this sentencing hearing. And he was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison, which was a sentence that Gail's siblings were thankful for. Robert appealed his conviction, but he was unsuccessful. Robert was eligible for parole for the first time in October of 2020. He had a parole hearing in December of that year where, for the first time, he actually confessed to murdering Gail. He said, quote, I wanted her to stop yelling at me, and I attacked her, end quote. He admitted to strangling her to death, then renting a plane and dumping her body over the ocean. He further stated that he murdered Gail because he was immature and didn't understand how to deal with anger. That actually irritates the crap out of me to say you were immature and that's why you killed someone. Come on. Right. Yeah. 
He's currently serving his time in the Otisville Correctional Facility in New York, and his next parole hearing is sometime in January 2024. I'm assuming the only reason he even admitted to doing this is that's like a big part of parole. They want you to show that you have remorse for what you've done. So I wonder if he would have ever said it, that notwithstanding. Right. Yeah. So in honor of Gail, the nonprofit organization Pace Women's Justice Center was rebranded as Gail's House to bring greater awareness to domestic violence issues and provide resources to women. Elaine said she allowed them to use her sister's name as a way to honor her memory. Elaine told ABC, quote, my sister's body has never been found. Gail doesn't rest anywhere. Gail's House gave my sister a resting place. I feel my sister's spirit is here warning others, inspiring others, end quote. If you or someone you know needs help escaping an abusive relationship, you can call the Nationwide Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. You can also chat at thehotline.org, or you can text START to 88788. And all three of these are 24-7, they're free, and they're confidential. And of course, there are many other resources on the Domestic Violence Hotline website. This story is just so sad. I mean, it it's always sad when somebody is killed, especially like in this type of fashion and in an abusive relationship situation. I feel... Yeah so terribly for Gail's family because especially, you know, her sister sounds like she kind of knew a lot about what was going on and just kind of felt helpless to really do anything and really just wanted her sister to be able to get out. And it sounds like Gail was making, you know, her moves to try and get out of that situation. But that is one of the times when it can be the most dangerous. If you are in a dangerous relationship, trying to leave is really one of the most dangerous things. And it's just cases like this really highlight how important it is to have resources and how we have really come a very long way with how we kind of investigate and respond to domestic violence cases, thankfully. Yeah, obviously, more, more work can be done there. But we've definitely come, it's much different than it was in the 80s, thankfully, and hopefully we keep seeing more changes. But I love that they have Gail's house. I think that's great for her family. And I am glad that he finally confessed. I'm sure that does it doesn't bring her back, but I'm sure the family just to know like he's where he belongs and right. this is what happened. And just to have the closure because there truly is nothing worse than just not having answers and not knowing and if he never, you know, they could suspect everything, you know, whatever they and what they suspected ended up being pretty much yeah. the, the case, but for him to actually come out and admit it, it's like, okay, now we know what happened. We can, you know, start to fully accept and, you know, grieve. Right. Okay, Melissa, that was the story for this week. Um, let's just do a really quick last thing before we go. I'd love it. Thank you. Okay. So in the beginning of the episode, I said I was down in the doldrums because oh no, January just stinks. Let's just say it. And January stinks. It's not my favorite month of the year. So I thought, we haven't done this in a while. I would just look up some fun holidays that take place Yay. in January. And by fun, I mean stupid, silly, stupid, silly, doldrum. interesting. Some of them have already happened. So, but I can't wait to get to the ones that are coming up, Melissa. There are some that are really exciting just for you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Best day ever. Okay. So, January 3rd, we missed this one, was Humiliation Day. Ooh. I call that January 1st through 31st. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Apparently, it's not a day to humiliate someone or put them to shame. It's time to recognize the negativity 
that humiliating or embarrassing someone or a group of people brings. So it's called Humiliation Day, but it should be called Anti-Humiliation Day. Shouldn't it be just Anti-Bullying Day? Because I feel like that's what that's what they're saying but there was like already an anti-bullying day so they were like fine humiliation day people can figure out what it means that's so weird yeah another day that actually just passed two days ago i'm very upset that we both missed this one melissa because i know i didn't celebrate properly you probably didn't either january 16th is national nothing day it's quite simply a day designated for doing nothing Honestly, would have loved to have known it. Could not wait to celebrate it. Can't wait to celebrate it next year. Let's put it on our calendars. We'll call it a Moms and Mysteries like official holiday. Let's it's have definitely. nothing, Davy. January 16th. Write it down, guys. We're going to remember. I'm going to put it in my calendar. It's a real thing. January 16th. Take off next year. It's a day. <laughs> National Nothing Day. Perfect. Okay. So, Melissa, this one is coming up for you. I think this episode comes out on what? The 22nd? 23rd. 23rd. Oh, well, then it's today. The day this comes out. This is what you have to do. Today is National Measure Your Feet Day. (laughs) How dare you? I absolutely (laughs) thought this was going to be Diet Coke related, but I forgot you hate me and you're... Oh, why? I don't know. So I clicked on the little thing to get more information. Why (laughs) would you click on that? (laughs) I just wanted to find out why. Because literally that's what it says. It says at this point, we stop and ask ourselves why. (laughs) Then they decided not to even speculate. Anyway, it's National Measure Your Feet Day. The funniest part of this to me was the the suggestions for ways to participate in Measure Your Feet Day. <laughs> Here's ways to participate. Number one, measure your feet. <laughs> okay. Obviously. I left that one off. But Number I'm worried two. about the next ones. <laughs> Number two, measure the feet of everyone in your no, family. No, 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 no. Don't get other people involved in your stuff. And <laughs> Number three, play a guessing game. Someone in the group measures their feet, then everyone guesses how big someone's feet are, and you give out socks as prizes. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love socks, and I wouldn't even do this. I No, I wouldn't do this. I, this is so upsetting. Why? Who, I don't know. Who read this and did this? One person probably <laughs> read this and did this, and guess what? Nobody invites them to things anymore. Nobody oh wants them goodness. around. <laughs> Ew, Mandy. Ugh. I know. Okay. And here's one that's wholesome that we can all actually take part in. This is this one is not a joke. January 31st is Inspire Your Heart with Art Day, which I just love. I rolled my eyes because just <laughs> wait. You go from disgusting I- feet to inspiring <laughs> us with art, which some people would consider measuring feet as art. So I hope you're happy. I feel like in honor of Inspire Your Heart with Art Day, whatever episode's coming out around that time, I don't know what day of the week that is, we should do another one of those that yes. before we go where mm-hmm. we describe famous artworks in Perfect. words and see if we can guess what it is. Yes. It's been about a year. It might have even been two years. But yeah, we have to do that. We have to name famous pieces of art. Oh, I'm so glad you reminded me. Yes. I'll that have to was repost a, on so Instagram funny. the last one. Yeah. So Inspire Your Heart with Art on January 31st. And send us any art you think we should describe or try to rename or like guess the names of. Um, No feet, no feet, no feet. (laughs) And I need you to understand no feet. Um, And we'll do that for the next one. Great idea, Mandy. Perfect. So before 
before we go. Mandy, uh, before we really go, I should say, what's what was that that you were watching on TV last night when this comes out on Monday, January 22nd at 10 p.m. on ID Channel? Oh, do you mean the season premiere of the Playboy Murders season two? Wow. Season two, episode one, January 22nd, 2024, 10 p.m., I know some of the girls on there probably if they used us. <laughs> we have no idea yet, but we should have possibly maybe sort of been on the episode uh, yes. last night. And so we're discussing a case we covered last year, I think. Um, it was the murder of Michael Tardio and Christopher Monson. So anyway, it was a very fascinating case that's still unsolved today. And we were asked to be commentators on it. And so we did. And so... Watch it and let us th- know what you think. If we're in it right now, we don't know. We're, 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 we're told we're in, in it. it. <laughs> but wouldn't it be funny if we're just not? We haven't seen a preview yet or anything. So we were told we were in it, but we don't know. We're all finding out together. Oh, gosh. So maybe <laughs> don't watch it. Give us another week. We'll tell you to watch yeah. it. <laughs> but you should be able to watch it on Max and all those things. Uh, after, if you wanted to, it's a really interesting story for sure. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, that truly was it for this week (laughs) we will be back next week same time same place new story have a great week bye 